And uh, I want you to read along with me in verses 14 through 26. This is a passage that has perplexed uh, many Christians down through the years. In fact, some people think this is probably the most controversial passage in the whole Bible. I'm not sure that's true because there's quite a few, all, I think almost equally controversial passages in the Bible. But I think if, if we read James the way that James's congregation read James with the Old Testament in our hands, a lot of the confusion disappears. And uh, uh, I, I want you to uh, follow along with me if you'd stand, uh, verses 14 through 26. We're going to be examining this in light of the Old Testament. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. We rejoice. We have the whole Bible, not just little pieces here and there translated into our language, but we have the whole Bible by which to examine your word. And I pray, Father, as, as uh, I bring this word to this, your people, that you would encourage them and build them up in your most holy faith, that the word would be quickened with the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would anoint my lips and enable me to clearly articulate the things you have laid upon my heart. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This passage is a wonderful, wonderful corrective to the carnality that you see in the 20th century church, and uh, Satan knows that, and so he has done everything he can do to bring confusion to this passage, because if people are confused about it, they're going to tend to ignore the passage. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you're going to find this to be a very beneficial passage. You're going to praise the Lord for it. Now, this section defines four essential doctrines. We're going to emphasize just one of them, but we're going to at least touch on these four. What constitutes a saving faith? Uh, there are a lot of people who think they are Christians, and they are not. They don't have a saving faith. So what constitutes a saving faith? Secondly, what constitutes a works that is pleasing to God? You know, everybody talks about wanting to do good works. Even pagans uh, talk about that. What constitutes a works that is pleasing to God? Hebrews tells believers that some of their good works were actually dead works. And they needed to repent of those dead works. And Paul indicates that uh, whatever uh, works do not flow from faith are dead works. So we're going to be looking at what, does con what constitutes 
works that are pleasing to God. Thirdly, and this is the one that's addressed in the handout, and if you don't have a handout, you need to pick one up because we're going to be relying heavily on that handout, and it's out in the hallway. And that's the question, what are the four kinds of justification? Actually, you're going to see other justifications in there. There's seven altogether, and there's a couple mentioned in the footnote in the Old Testament. Reformers could tell you exactly all of the distinctions between these uh, justifications. Many people today are so ignorant of justification, they can't even tell you one of them. They can't even tell you one of them. They think that justification is just inviting Jesus into your heart. And uh, it's, it's quite different. I hope by the end of this, uh, uh, this, this sermon here, you'll have a good grasp of not only the Old Testament dis, uh, distinctions, but how the New Testament deals with that. Fourth, how can the doctrine of forensic justification, don't worry about the, the definition of that yet, how can the doctrine of forensic justification be a practical doctrine in our lives? Not just for when we got converted, but for how we live our lives for the rest of our lives. Now, before we get into the teachings, I think it, it's only fair for us to bring up the objections that people have brought to this. Now, we believe in the five solas of the Reformation. There's sola scriptura. You know, scripture alone is the foundation for our Christian faith. We believe in sola fide, by faith alone. So, justification by faith alone. Well, the moment those words are out of your lips, Roman Catholics will come along and they'll point to um, James chapter 2 and verse 24, which says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And they will see, say, it's obvious we're not justified by faith alone. Anybody that's not blind as a bat can see that uh, justification is by faith plus works. Now, liberals will come along and they will not only attack the Protestants, they'll also attack the Roman Catholics and they'll say, you're both wrong. In fact, Paul or James is wrong because they contradict one another. And here's some of the, the scriptures that they will bring up from Paul. They'll quote Romans 4, verse 6, and all of these quotes are out of context. Uh, we'll look at the context later, but God imputes righteousness apart from works. Here's another one. We have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Galatians 2.16. On the other hand, James says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son? Actually, they don't go on to quote that. Was he not justified by works? And they'll say, he's appealing to the same Abraham that Paul is appealing to, and there's a flat-out contradiction here. Paul says they are justified by faith apart from works. James says they are justified by works. And so that is really what is perplexing about this passage to most of these uh, people. Now, the problem with Rome and with uh, the liberals and even many of the evangelicals who are confused on this topic is because they have not read James in light of the Old Testament. Um, James is the first New Testament book to have been written. Paul wasn't even on the scene yet, okay? This is the first book to have been written. The only Bible that they have to be Bereans on, to be checking things out, is the Old Testament. And James doesn't even define his terms. He expects they know the definitions of the terms that are being used in the Old Testament. We need to read Paul in light of the Old Testament. We need to read James in light of the Old Testament. Otherwise, we'll go astray in terms of uh, our definitions. And that's why I've given that handout to you that explains the different kinds of justifications. 
And I, I'm going to, for the most part, just stick to the four, even though with the footnote and everything, you have all of the different definitions there. And some people might think, well, you know, do we really need to define terms? Aren't you just defining your way out of a problem? And that's not true at all, because words do have different definitions. If you look up almost any English word in the dictionary, you'll find two, three, four, many, sometimes even more than that. The same is true uh, of Greek. Uh, for example, uh, I wrote down at the supper table yesterday uh, a little uh, a sentence. Uh, Since there is no time like the present, he thought it was time to present the present. Okay, the word present, P-R-E-S-E-N-T, is used three times. Since there is no time like the present, he thought it was time to present the present. Okay, now you, you know exactly what is meant, even though there's three different definitions of the word present. Or I could uh, use an um, illustration. The archer hung up his bow, and he made a bow so low that his bow tie touched the ground. Okay, the word B-O-W has three different definitions, and not a one of you was confused when I used those three uh, words in my sentence. You all knew it because of the context and the way in which it was used. Now, here's a, a sentence that's a little bit um, more uh, difficult. Think of a teacher who has written a sentence on the blackboard, and it's got three that's in it, T-H-A-T, and he's trying to teach them grammar, and he's asking them, is this a, a problematical formation that's on there, and they're debating back and forth, and the students are really confused about one of those that's. And one of the students is arguing very vigorously, and he, here's what he says, I'm telling you that 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 teacher used in the sentence was correct. Okay, let me read that again. I'm telling you that 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 teacher used in a sentence was correct. Now, each of those that's in that sentence used a different part of speech. You have a conjunction, you've got a demonstrative pronoun, although there's there's debate on that. Some people say it was, uh, it's a determiner. You've got a noun. It's used as a noun, an adverb, and an adjective. Now, even if you don't understand all the parts of grammar, it doesn't matter. Every one of you knew exactly what was meant by that sentence. Now, that's far, far more complicated than the differences of meaning in the term justification. Those are very straightforward once you understand uh, the definitions. And uh, righteousness is at the uh, root of that word. You appear righteous. You're declared righteous. But righteousness in some way is at the root of the word justification. Now, if you look at your handout, I want to walk you through the sheet. Uh, right up at the top, it says, just as the word sanctification has a variety of meanings, the word justification has a variety of meanings as well. The Old Testament used the term justification in at least three ways. Stative justification, which is a state of being righteous. Let me just stop there. Based on that definition, there's only one human being that's ever been fully justified, and that's Jesus Christ. Um, he was fully righteous. He was fully justified. Job 4.17, can a mortal be more righteous than God? And that's literally the word justified. Can he be more justified? Now look at the second definition, demonstrative justification, being shown to be righteous. And let me read that reference. Jeremiah 3.11, Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Israel. Now the phrase shown righteous is just one Hebrew word, and it's the word for justified. But every translation you have out there translates it shown righteous because the context demands that. Okay, it demands that kind of a, uh, of a concept. 
And keep that one in mind because that definition is uh, one of two that James is going to be using, including this next one. And this next one is the most common form in the Old Testament. It is to, it's forensic um, justification. Let me just define that. Scott Polsky, you know, is a, a, a lawyer and and everything he does in the courtroom deals with forensics. Now, a lot of times we think of forensics as connected with medicine because you hear forensic medicine. Well, that's just where a doctor has been assigned the job of determining was there foul play and bringing his evidence to the courtroom to determine if, you know, it was a crime had been committed or not. That's forensic medicine. And so forensic justification is justification that occurs in the courtroom, okay, where either the defendant or the... Uh, the um, uh, plaintiff is declared innocent. Let me read uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If there is a dispute between men, they come to court that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And so to justify means to affirm the uprightness of either the, the plaintiff or the defendant. Now look at the subpoints under there because there are three kinds of forensic justification in the Old Testament. And I'll just read the, the, par the whole paragraph and then we'll focus most of our time on the bottom chart. Forensic justification, the most common usage where a person is declared righteous by a court of law, Deuteronomy 25.1. But the Old Testament also further subdivided forensic justification into three categories. First in order was mediate justification, that is, the means of getting justified, which would involve an appeal to a court. This was key, as there could be no justification or acquittal apart from appeal. In other words, something bad has been done to you, uh, or so you've done something bad to somebody else, if, you, if that person doesn't take it to court, or you don't take it to court, it's never going to get dealt with, right? And so there has to be the appeal uh, here's the sample verse listed there. State your case that you may be acquitted. And that's the same word as justif uh, justified. So state your case that you may be justified, Isaiah 43, verse 26. In this sense, the accused is justified by appeal. You can see how this parallels our spiritual justification by faith. B, second in order, was meritorious justification, the presentation of the merits or grounds or evidence of the case. According to biblical principles of justice, there had to be merits to the case. And I give a, an example proof text. Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Isaiah 43, verse 9. Third, the third forensic component was judicial justification, the judge's legal declaration of acquittal justification, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. Such a declaration could not happen apart from the two points we've already looked at, appeal and evidence that justified such a declaration. So just to stop there for a moment, in a sense, this means that all justification is by works. In the courtroom, it's by faith in the works of Christ. Outside the courtroom, it's by works. But it's, works is always involved, otherwise the judge would be an unjust judge, right? If he justified those uh, who, who were guilty. Now, going on, it says, once a person left the courtroom, he was called upon to show the truth of the court's declaration, declarative uh, justification. He was not subject to the court any longer, but he still had an implied obligation to live his profession. So he was not to bring a bad testimony against that judge, uh, you know, and uh, slander that judge's name, 
by acting contrary to what the judge had declared. That's the point. Now, I'm repeating here, but it's very, very important that we understand these, these concepts of justification, not only for our benefit, but so we can also defend uh, the doctrine. Now, if you go to the bottom section of the paper where the chart is, you'll notice on the left-hand margin there are two brackets. And the first bracket outlines three kinds of justification that occur in the courtroom. The fourth kind of justification occurs outside the courtroom. Now, you may want to add onto that paper two other phrases. The first three kinds of justification are justification. This is in the spiritual realm. They are justification of a sinner. Okay, justification of a sinner. Beside the fourth one, you should put in there justification of a saint. Okay, so that's another distinguishing uh, mark that you'll see between the two. And so you've been justified, and uh, God has declared you to be a saint. Okay, you've, you, your sins have been forgiven. You leave the courtroom. You're no longer subject to that court. You don't need to worry about any accusations. And if Satan brings accusations against you and tries to condemn you in your spirit, you can say, look, God has already justified me. He's already let me off the hook, and there is no double jeopardy in God's justice. Now, you understand double jeopardy when you go to a human court of law. If you've been tried and uh, you've been found not guilty, you can't be tried again, okay? It would be double jeopardy to try you a second time. Well, in God's justice, there can be no double jeopardy. So you just answer Satan, God justified me. Can't be any double jeopardy. I'm off the hook on, on that one. <clears throat> okay, let's look now at the three kinds of justification here. First one says we are justified immediately by faith alone. There are several scriptures. Immediately means the, the means or the channel of getting something done. So the paragraph goes on to say, faith is the legal channel or means by which that righteousness is claimed or received. Unless we appeal to the court for justification, we are not justified. But in the courtroom, we must by faith appeal to Christ's works, not our own. The moment our own works are brought into the courtroom, a guilty verdict must come against us. As James makes clear, if we violate even one law, we have broken all. Now, let me go ahead and read that reference for you. It's chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. James is not stupid. You know, he's not saying you can go to a court of law and your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds. No, you're either guilty of sin or you're not guilty of sin. It's sort of like pregnancy. You can't be sort of pregnant, you know. You're either pregnant, you're not. You're either guilty or you're not guilty in a court of law. And so he says, if you have violated even one of God's laws, period, you are guilty. Okay, so James does not get mixed up. You know, he's not confused on, on, on these issues. Okay, last sentence of first point. In the courtroom, faith alone can shine because faith alone appropriates Christ's merits. And give a bunch of scriptures. We're going to be seeing how... James deals with justification by faith alone, and he'll also be bringing up justification by works alone. There's two different kinds of justifications. Okay, second one. We are justified meritoriously by Christ alone. And let me read a couple of those verses. Isaiah 53, 11 says of Jesus, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. So Jesus became our substitute, and he justifies us. So which is it? Are we justified by faith? Are we justified by Christ? Well, they're both true, but they're different, they're different aspects of the equation. Uh, Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, reading on in point two, 
This is a legal ground. Now, ground is the same way as saying the next two words, basis or merit, for that declaration of God. Since God, quote, justifies the ungodly, unquote, Romans 4, verse 5, the ungodly sinner who comes for mercy has no merit of his own. Now, let's stop there for a moment because that is a key, key phrase. When Paul talks about God's justification, in other words, forensic justification, the one that occurs in the courtroom, um, it has to be by faith alone because he knows that the moment we bring our works into the equation, our works will work against us. Does that make sense? Our works are going to condemn us because they're all tainted with sin. Uh, Romans 4 verse 5 says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now moving on in your outline there. Instead, the righteousness of Christ must be imputed. Imputed means to be credited to your account. You're treated as if, in fact, many times it's translated that way. It's as if you were. You don't actually have it, but you're treated as if you have it. Okay, so uh, treated, uh, where, is, where are we? Instead, the righteousness of Christ must be imputed to him. When faith unites us to Christ, our sins were imputed to Jesus who suffered in our place and his righteousness is imputed to us. There can be no justification apart from the perfect works of Christ. Okay, the third one, and we're giving these as background before we get into James. We are justified judicially by God alone. And I give some verses there. This is a legal declaration that was made by God as judge once and for all that we are Legally not guilty, we are legally righteous. No one but God can make this judicial declaration. So a pastor can't make it, an angel can't make it. Only God can condemn and only God can justify as James chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 make very clear. Only God can do that. So that's justification by God's declaration. Now let's say you're a saved, you're a justified Christian like these uh, Jews and James congregation claim to be. How do you live as saints? And that's where the fourth justification comes in. We are justified evidentially by works alone. And James and 1 John are so concerned about the Christian's testimony before the world. What does the world see when it looks at the Christian? Are they going to judge us as being Christians just by our profession? And the scripture says, no, they're going to judge us as being Christians based upon our behavior. And so 1 John verse two, uh, 2 verse 4 says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Why? Well, because if a person is justified by faith in the courtroom, that means God gave him the faith. It means he's regenerated. It means he's already had changes in his life. You're going to see those changes outwardly. And that's what this justification is, is talking about. Now, let, let me just go off track here a little bit and go back to the... Uh, the footnote on sanctification, there are different aspects to sanctification as well. There's definitive sanctification that the moment you were converted, you were set apart to God and declared to be a saint. Does that mean you don't have any sins? Well, you have sins, but in some way you're treated without sin. You're treated as being a saint. You're set apart to God. That's called definitive sanctification. Then there's progressive sanctification that goes throughout our life. And then there's final sanctification where every vestige of sin is going to be removed from your life. Well, just like there's definitive sanctification, there is definitive justification that occurs in the courtroom. It's once and for all. 
God declares you to be righteous, not guilty. You're off the hook. You're out of the courtroom. You can go sailing on. But the moment you are uh, judicially declared not guilty, because God has put faith in your heart, immediately there's going to be progressive justification as well, which is simply the showing forth of our justified state that we are what God says we are, that we are righteous. And there's going to be a final uh, demonstration that we are righteous uh, in, in heaven. And so those, those are the, the different categories. So back to your handout there. It says, works is the visible demonstration that we have a saving faith and that the court has indeed vindicated us. Since faith is an inner quality that cannot be seen, faith cannot demonstrate anything. Works are the only demonstration by which others can see that we are justified Christians. See Christ's statement, by their fruits you will know them. If there are no works, it is evident that there was no faith, and thus that there was no judicial declaration that we are acquitted. As the Reformers worded it, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Now, that's pretty heavy stuff, but I wanted you to at least have it in your handout. That's kind of a summary of the way the Old Testament deals with justification, and it's how the New Testament deals with it as well. And if you keep those four distinctions in your mind, uh, the immediate, the meritorious, you know, the judicial and the evidential justification, you keep those four distinctions in your mind, most passages in the Bible, you're going to be able to instantly tell, oh yeah, that's obvious what that is. The context makes it so clear what kind of justification it is. Now, there's just a few scattering of verses that you'd have to look at the footnote. Uh, like the state of justification, God is justified, and Jesus was justified. And in heaven, we will be justified in a state of sense that we are fully 100% righteous, okay? Now, let's do a little bit of sleuthing. Let's get into the book of James, and let's do a little bit of sleuthing to see what kind of justification that James is looking at. And let's start at verse 24, since this is the one that uh, Roman Catholics and liberals, just about everybody seems to quote. So we'll start backwards and work forwards. He says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, most people who are opposed to sola fide, justification by faith alone, in the courtroom, and they say in the courtroom there has to be works, they, they translate that or they say that that should be alone. And unfortunately, they answer that alone as if it was an adjective. It is not an adjective in the Greek. If you look it up in the Greek, it is an adverb. Now, let me read from a commentary so you can see what a difference it makes, whether it's an adjective or whether it's an adverb. This commentator says, The Greek adverb only, monon, does not qualify or modify the word faith, since the form would then have been mones. As an adverb, however, it modifies the verb justified implied in the second clause and not only justified by faith. James is saying that a by-faith justification is not the only kind of justification there is. There is also a by-works justification. The former type is before God. The latter type is before men, unquote. Now, why would James have to distinguish between a by-faith justification and a by-works justification? Well, because, in fact, if you look, there's a hint at it in the beginning of verse 24. You see then, okay, it's something he's just been talking about. He's just finished talking about two separate times in Abraham's life, 40 years apart, where he was justified here and he was justified here. Two different justifications. And he's clarifying, he's, <coughs> he's saying, you see now, 
there is two kinds of justification <coughs> in his life. So look at verse 23. This verse could very easily have been put into the, into the mouth of Paul, into Romans. Uh, and, it, and it appeals to the same time in Abraham's life that Paul is appealing to when he is defending his doctrine of justification by faith at conversion, exactly the same time. Okay, verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's exactly what Paul says, Galatians 3, 6. Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Word for word, identical, and the word accounted in both of those passages is a legal word that belongs in the courtroom. It's the word, the Greek word logizomai, which means to count as if, to impute. Now what is it that's being imputed to him? Well, the text here says it's righteousness that was imputed to him. And James is quoting from Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham was an uncircumcised pagan who had just been given the gift of faith by God. Now, that ought to be encouraging. If any of you have uh, older relatives who are unsaved, here's somebody who came to faith at 85 years old, okay? But uh, you can see that James has no problem whatsoever with justification by faith at the time of conversion. He's teaching the same thing that Paul does. Now, the last phrase of verse 23 does not indicate that Abraham earned God's friendship over time. It says he was called the friend of God. When was he called the friend of God? It was when he was justified. When was he justified? It was when he, was, and when he believed. Okay? So the moment he believed, he was the friend of God. Okay? Uh, he was treated as righteous at that very moment as well. It was imparted to him. And so far, so good. We've got Paul and James uh, shaking hands. They're in total agreement. Now look at verses 21 through 22. We've got an entirely different justification here. And the reason I say it's entirely different is because he's quoting from two totally different periods of time. In verse 23, he quotes from Genesis chapter 15 when Paul, I mean, Abraham is 85 years old. In verses 20 through, uh, 21 through 22, he's quoting from Genesis 22 when Abraham was 125 years old. Okay, now, just for your information, he lived quite a long time after that, up to 175 is he, he died. But I want you to keep in your mind, we've, we're dealing with two widely separated events in Abraham's life, and that's so key to understanding this, this passage. Okay, let's read that. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? It was not his court justification that was made perfect. It was his faith that was made perfect. And it was not his court justification that was made by works. That had already taken place 40 years before. Can you see that? Uh, that was a justification before God. Now he's out of the court. Uh, this is a justification before man uh, to demonstrate that the faith that caused him to believe 15 years before is an authentic faith. The justifying faith is a faith that works. That's what James is saying. His faith was tested. And by the way, Hebrews indicates in chapter 11 that Abraham was so convinced of God's promise in Genesis chapter 15 that he would raise up a seed through Isaac that he 
it says that he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Read that in Hebrews 11 sometime. If he had to follow through on the sacrifice, God was obligated to raise Isaac from the dead. That was the kind of faith that he was expressing uh, uh, before, uh, before others. And I think it's a good question to ask us. If you were on trial for your Christianity, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough good works in your life, enough changes that God by his spirit has wrought in your life where people say, oh, yeah, he's obviously a Christian. You know, he's not a fake. This person has been transformed by the grace of God. Now, let's do a little bit more sleuthing to make sure that we're right in what we're saying here, that there is this distinction. Um, If James is really talking about evidential justification, and everybody agrees there's that kind of a justification in the Old Testament. If he's really talking about that, then you would expect that James would be talking to Christians about showing their justification, not talking to pagans about receiving a justification that they don't have. Well, let's take a look and see if that's the case. Turn with me to uh, James 1 and verse 2, and let's look at who he is addressing here. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Uh, Take a look down there at verse 9. Let the lowly brother, uh, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Uh, Verse 19, so then, my beloved brethren. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren. Uh, Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. Verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren? Uh, Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked. Chapter 3, verse 1, my brethren. I mean, all the way through this book, he is addressing people that he says are his brothers... And he contrasts them with Jewish people who he says are not his brothers and who are not believers. So he's not just talking about brother in the sense, yeah, they're the same nationality. He's talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay, there's some other hints that we can find. These people have claims to having faith. Uh, They either actually have the faith or they're at least making claims to having faith. Uh, Look at verse 3 of chapter 1 knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Um, Well, verse 18 is one that um, shows that he he assumes they're born again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So he's lumping them in with him. Us, we, we have been born again. We've been brought forth as God's firstfruits. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, we saw last time that, yeah, they were inconsistent with their profession, but they at least had a profession. They were holding on to faith. And um, chapter 2, verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? So he says he has faith. And there's other examples you could see that there is, um, there is faith that's evidenced. But I think this is an even more important point to I- indicate which kind of justification is he pointing to. Is it the demonstrative justification or is it the courtroom justification? And it's the word show. Now, the Greek word is dexon, And dexon means to display, to exhibit, uh, to make it visible to other people, to show. And if you take a look at chapter 2, verse 4, in fact, I've circled a bunch of these. Have you not shown partiality? Uh, verse 9, if you show partiality. Verse 12, so speak and so do. It's not enough to make a profession to speak. You've got to do it too. You've got to show it. Okay, down at verse 18. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Can you see how point by point all the evidence is pointing to the fact that James is insisting you've got to have evidential justification. You've got to show forth uh, your uh, justification. Now, the next proof of the fact that James is not trying to get pagans, you know, justified in court, but rather that he's trying to get uh, uh, Christians to show their justification, is that he's seeking to convince them that there is a difference between false faith and saving faith. He points out that faith, if it's genuine, always leads to good works. And that's the primary concern, actually, in his mind. Now, his whole solution to the question here is not to get pagans to do good works. Uh, he knows that if pagans bring their good works to the courtroom, it's going to go against them. Verse 10, even one broken commandment any time in your life, the books are going to be thrown against you. So that's not his point. Uh, 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 his point is not to get pagans to do good works, but to get weak Christians to gain assurance of their salvation by producing works that flow from faith. Works apart from faith are by definition dead works. Okay? Works produced by a saving faith are good works. And I forget if I mentioned, uh, we probably should put on those brackets, and you can put beside the verses. Verses 21 through 22, justification of a saint. Verse 23, justification of a sinner. And you can put the same on the brackets that are in your page. Now, just to demonstrate this, what I want to do, now that I've set the, the framework of what we're talking about, I want to just very quickly go verse by verse through this section. I want you to see it's the most natural reading of this passage. The context, we've already looked at last time, in verses 1 and following, he says they're holding the faith. He's acknowledging that they profess to, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's saying, your works are putting a lie to what you're saying. What's going on here? Why are you not zealous about holiness? Why is it you got such a shallow Christianity? Why are you breaking these different commandments? That's the context. And so verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Did I mention that you need to insert the word that in there? Uh, if you look in a Greek interlinear, uh, you will see that there's a word that's not translated in here. It's the word hey. And so he's not saying that faith does not save. He is saying a, the kind of faith he's just been talking about does not save. A sterile faith does not save. And so it's clearly in there, and you ought to just write it in. Can that faith save him? Okay, verses 15 through 16, he's saying that words are empty without action. And so faith without works is empty. Words without works are empty. And then in verse 17, he gets to the nub of the issue and he says that such faith by itself is dead. <clears throat> he says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I've underlined the word by itself because that was a key phrase for the reformers. Uh, they said that we are justified in the court of law in heaven by faith alone that lays hold of Christ's works, by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And that's exactly what James is saying. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. <clears throat> Our works don't save us in God's uh, courtroom. All they can do is condemn us. And if we have a sterile faith, then it's obviously not a faith that uh, laid claim to Christ's righteousness in the courtroom is basically what he is saying. Verse 18, but someone will say, uh, he, here he's going on, he, he's dealing with the opposite error of somebody who thinks that they can have good works apart from faith. See, so he's dealing with both sides of the equation. 
Um, uh, James does not major, major on the problem of dead works like Paul does. He mentions it. And Paul does not major on the problem of dead faith like James does. He mentions it. Uh, but both of them agree that they have to go together. Anyway, he says here, uh, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. And James says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You cannot separate faith and works that way. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Any faith that can be demonstrated apart from works is not the faith that James has. And any works that does not flow from faith is not the works that James has. He says, you cannot separate them. One flows from the other. Verse 19 says that uh, a mere doctrinal belief will not save you. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. There are some people who believe that all faith is is believing enough of the right doctrines. Well, let me tell you something. Demons know more about God than you do. They've been around for 6,000 years, and Scripture indicates that Satan knows the Scriptures inside out. He believes it. That's why he trembles over that. He believes it. What he doesn't do, though, he does not love it. He does not obey it. He does not embrace it. And true faith involves more than the mind. It involves the mind, the will, and the emotions. And the reformers uh, really held to that. Uh, we, must, we must affirm the truth. We must embrace the truth. We must love the truth. And the demons don't do that. And so mere doctrinal knowledge is not saving faith, uh, according to uh, James here. Okay, verse 20, he says again that faith without works is a dead faith. Verses 21 through 23, he gives Abraham as a proof. He says, okay, yes, there was justification by faith at the beginning of his Christian pilgrimage. But later on, uh, he demonstrates that faith by works. His faith is a living faith. In fact, it's such a living faith. This is a remarkable testimony to the strength of his faith uh, is what he's doing there. Now, let's just break that apart uh, point by point. Verse 21, justification by works is by works alone. And so he picks an example of incredible works. In real life, there are all kinds of examples that could be given, but he picks one from Genesis 22, 40 years labor. And Abraham was living out the experience of what he already had positionally in justification. Let me say that again. He was living out the experience of what he had positionally in justification. Verse 22, notice that he says faith was working. Abraham already had faith, but it was a working faith. He already had it. Second, notice that he says by works, faith was made perfect. The only way you can perfect your faith, the only way you can mature your faith is to engage in good works that no unbeliever can do. That's the only way that faith is going to grow. It's going to be perfected. And so what faith uh, needs to do is it needs to step into the Jordan River, if God commands us to go into the Jordan River, right? And, and, and then our faith grows as, as we see God coming through on our behalf time after time. And so faith will do things unbelievers cannot do. And it's just like, whoa, God, you're calling me to do this? But yes, I will believe you. Um, you're calling me to, you know, to love the unlovable. You're calling me to rejoice in the face of persecution. You're calling me to do all of these impossible things. But I know in myself I cannot do it. But by faith, I lay claim to your grace, your power, and it walks. And that's what perfects faith. Well, Abraham's faith, man, what a test of his faith here. How strengthened it became. And as I mentioned in Hebrews 11, it indicates he believed God was obligated to raise his son from the dead. Now, that is real faith. 
That is uh, real faith. It banks on the word of God even against all evidence. Okay, verse 23 describes justification by faith alone when Abraham was 85 years old, but the way he brings it up is interesting. He says the later event that he's just finished discussing was the fulfillment of this earlier event. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Evidential justification was the fulfillment of forensic justification. Okay? The first one, that was immediate, it was declarative, it was legal, it was once and for all. The second one was ongoing, it was continuous. And um, forensic justification brought Abraham from the state of being an enemy of God into a state of being a friend of God. Okay? Whereas evidential justification proved that Abraham was a friend of God. Okay? He acted like a friend. Can you see the distinctions between the two there? Verse 24, you see then, that, that's indicating he's appealing to the two justifications that he's just finished talking about. Uh, and now he's saying to his readers, do you see now why it's so important to have two justifications? You've already experienced the justification in verse 23 because you were admitted to the church. You know, you're professing believers. But don't you realize the second one is important as well? He's saying, you are already vindicated in the courtroom of heaven. At least I assume you were. And you're out of the courtroom now. At least if you're true believers, you're out of the courtroom. And if you're true believers, there's going to be evidential justification. That's what he is trying to emphasize uh, in that passage. As Christ said, by their fruits you will know them. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Okay, so he's just finished distinguishing between forensic justification and shown justification. Abraham's a beautiful example that you can distinguish those two. Now, he says, even though you can distinguish those two, I want to bring Rahab, the harlot, into the question so that you don't get the idea that you can separate those two. You can have long periods of time where you don't have any justification evidentially. You can live like the devil and just be happy as a lark. No, he says, don't get into that idea. He says, Rahab the harlot had all four justifications in one day. Okay, she was justified in the courtroom of heaven. God declared her saved. She had assurance of her salvation. And immediately, what happens? She gives evidential justification. Now, let me read the, the verse there. It says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Those spies could immediately see this woman has faith. This woman's a justified believer. Otherwise, she'd never risk her neck like this for us. They could see evidential justification in her life. And so uh, you can distinguish between forensic and evidential. And Abraham's, you know, clear example of distinguishing, but never separated. One always flows into the other. And then finally in verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Body and spirit need each other. Well, faith and works need each other. Can you see that? Saving faith leads to demonstrating faith. Beautifully, in harmony with one another, they're just emphasizing different things. Whereas Paul calls for repentance from dead works, Hebrews 6, 1, Galatians 3, 1 through 9, etc. And they're called dead because they don't flow from a spirit-given faith. James emphasizes dead faith. And it's called dead faith because it doesn't flow into spirit-given works. Okay? So even though they're emphasizing different things, um, both agree that what God has joined together, let not man separate. A second thing they're totally agreed on is 
that the Christian life begins with a legal crediting of righteousness to our account. James 2.23, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Note that nothing additional was needed for him to be seen as righteous, perfectly righteous in God's eyes. It was legally credited. Faith received it. He had it. He didn't just have 20% of it. He didn't have 75 or 95. He had righteousness in God's eyes. He didn't have to wait for 40 years, you know, till he somehow gets justified by works then. No, it says here he had it the moment that he believed. Paul says the same thing. Galatians 3, 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So they're speaking the same language. Third, both agree that saving faith produces works. Verse 22 says faith was working. Faith was working. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, faith working through love. He says in Titus 3, 8, those who have believed in God, so there's the faith, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Titus 3, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, the work of faith with power. Another one, your work of faith. Romans 1, 17, Galatians 3, 11, the just shall live by faith, and so James and John, James and Paul are saying exactly the same thing. Fourth, both affirm that justification by faith is for the sinner, not for the saint. And they both affirm that justification that's evidential, that's shown forth, is for the saint, not for the sinner. Let me prove it. Uh, again, Abraham in verse 23 was an uncircumcised pagan. And all that was required for God to credit to him righteousness was that he believed. Now, Abraham in verse 21, he's been a saint for 40 years. He's called a saint. He's a saint. And his justified state was shown by his works. And so, for him, the first legal justification was what? It was for a sinner. The second evidential justification was for a saint. Paul's no different. Paul says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, notice that phrase, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Romans 4, verse 5. And so he says, it's the ungodly who is justified in the courtroom. Not the person who's got all kinds of great works, okay? It's the ungodly who is justified in the courtroom. And so the bottom line is that professing believers need to be zealously, zealously pursuing after good works. Yeah, that's what Christ died to produce in them. And if it's not being produced in your life, it's an evidence you don't have faith. And if you don't have faith, you were never saved and justified in the first place. That's the bottom line. And, and, and you don't have to quote James to prove it. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? And he goes on to say, how do you examine yourselves? He says, by repenting and by doing the things I'm telling you. He says, twice I've told you and you haven't listened to me. Are you really Christians? That's exactly what Paul is saying. In Titus 2.16, Paul said, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. And that's the question we need to ask. Are your works denying your profession? Paul, in essence, is saying, if you don't have evidential justification, he denies that you've ever had judicial, forensic justification. Claiming to be a Christian is not enough. And in that same book, he said Christ's purpose in coming into our lives was to make us 
legally righteous and really righteous. You can distinguish between the legal and the real, but you cannot separate. Okay? Let, let me read a, a, another one. Well, let me, Hebrews says, pursue holiness without which no man will see the, the, the Lord. So that's just saying you can't separate justification and sanctification. Sanctification is the, the way that we're justified before the world. Okay? Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, and get this, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In the language of Paul, he died so that we could be saved in the courtroom and for the rest of our lives so that we could evidence that salvation to the whole world, anyone who wants to look. And so my admonition to you is to be a testimony to the world that your life is what God declared it to be, that you are a saint, that you are righteous, and that you're growing in righteousness and one day will be perfectly righteous. Hopefully that's helped you to get a good grasp of that. I've repeated many different ways, many different uh, uh, times, but I, I thought it was, it was necessary. So let's go to the Lord and let's go to communion, rejoicing in the security that we have because we never have to go back to that courtroom. And uh, also determined that we're going to live consistently with what that judge has declared about us and we're going to strive to be holy in Christ. Father God, we love you. We bless you. What an awesome salvation you have brought and wrought in our lives. And I pray, Father, that our lives would be con consistent with our testimony, that uh, we would be justified before the world, showing forth that which you have declared to be true legally in our lives. And Father, I, we long for that, that holiness of character, that, uh, that passion for your word and for your law that characterized your saints of old. I pray, Father, that if any in this congregation here uh, do not have the reality of faith, their faith is a sterile, empty faith that does not lead to works, Father, you would reveal that to them and you would instill and engender even through the word we have taught this morning, engender a genuine faith in them that uh, longs for your righteousness. Father, I pray that uh, we would, uh, through the rest of our lives, always be secure, never doubting, that once we were saved in that courtroom, we will never lose our salvation. But may we 